that's an important thing. So I want to say to you guys, well done for honoring God by being here to meet him and meet with his people on time. Absolutely brilliant. All right. A couple of weeks ago, this, this, this uh, conversation, I know who is, but what am I, is actually only three installments, but it's going to take us six weeks to get through them because uh, the Easter bunny keeps on changing his mind what time, or what week he's going to come from one year to the next. This year he waited till, uh, you know, mid-April before he turned up. And so, we, you know, he interrupted this. And then uh, next week we're celebrating mothers, which is, no, hang on, two weeks' time, celebrating mothers, which is great means we're going to finish this conversation the following week. And that's all right. But uh, it will be the longest three-week series, uh, I think, in church Christendom. I want to start this morning. And I want to read from uh, an excerpt from a book by one of my favorite authors and leaders, a guy named John Ortberg, leads a church, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, just in the Silicon Valley area in uh, Northern California. One of his books is called The Life You've Always Wanted. And... uh, I want to read an excerpt from that book. Now, I'm not going to put the, the, the words that I'm going to read on the screen. I just want you to listen. It's a little bit longer than, than, a, kind of, than a tweet, okay, what I'm about to read. This, this, what I'm about to read, will have more than 140 characters. Uh, but, but listen, and I want you to listen because I, I wonder up front, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, I wonder up front if, if maybe you can relate either now or you can remember times when you could relate or could have related to what John Ortberg describes about himself in, uh, in one part of this book. He said, I am disappointed with myself. I'm disappointed not so much with particular things I've done as with aspects of who I've become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique, and I I can't do basic home repairs. See, I relate to that one right there. Baden. Um, Actually, Jill. So far, I haven't shown much financial wizardry. Some of my disappointment is neurotic. Sometimes I'm too concerned about what others think of me, even people I don't know. But some of the disappointment in myself runs deeper. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make books come alive so they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. Not you, Pete. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights and hold them and pray for them in a way that makes them feel cherished. I look in on them as they sleep at night and I remember how the day really went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight over checkers and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy needed to teach them how to resolve conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her, even though I spill things all the time, and no one yells at me. I yelled at her to tell the truth, simply because I'm big and she's little, and I can get away with it. And then I saw that look of hurt and confusion in her eyes, 
and I knew there was a tiny wound on her heart that I'd put there, and I wished I could have taken those 60 seconds back. I remember how at night I didn't have slow, sweet talks, but merely rushed the children to bed so I could have more time to myself. I'm disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbor, and human being in general. I think of the day I was born when I carried the gift of promise, the gift of all babies. I think of that little baby and what it might have been, the ways I might have developed my mind and body and spirit, the thoughts I might have had, the joy I might have created. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. I always had the idea as a child that adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be. Yet the truth is I'm embarrassingly sinful. I am in a state of disappointment. I'm missing the life that I was appointed by God to live, missing my calling. And I've disappointed God. I've removed him from the central role he longs to play in my life. I've refused to let God be God and have appointed myself in his place. Now, I didn't read all of that to get us all depressed, okay? 10.05, my God, why did we think coming here was a good idea this morning? I didn't read that to, 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 to make us depressed and kind of, you know, hold up a mirror, a mirror you know, John Ortberg thinks he's, he's a disappointment. How many of you think yourselves are a disappointment? And if you don't think yourself as a disappointment, you should. You know, that, I haven't read that for that reason, but I've read it because I wonder if some of us do actually resonate at times with being a disappointment, living in what I call the gap, the, the gap between who we kind of inherently know we were created to be and yet who we really are every day. Maybe the gap between who, you know, what God has called us to do and what we actually do. The gap between the promise and the everyday. I'm pretty confident that most of us can relate to the gap in one or more areas of our life and, and potentially one or more times in our lives. And it's that gap that I want to talk about. If you're not sure that you have maybe some aspects of the gap, let, let, me, let me run a little test for you. There's something that Jesus said. I mean, he said a lot of things, but one of the things that he says, and it kind of almost sums him up in a sentence, and this is recorded by John. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. How many of you who are followers of Jesus find that easy to believe? Just flip your hand. I'm the light of the world. Jesus said that. Yep, I'm good. I believe it. You know, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, elsewhere, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So he, he, he at one point says that he's the light of the world. We say, yep, amen, I believe it, easy. And elsewhere, he said, you, me, we, his followers are the light of the world. And I wonder if some of you maybe find that second bit a little bit harder to believe. He actually used the same words to describe us as he used to describe himself. But I wonder if that's how we see things or whether indeed there's a gap between our reality of the everyday and the promise of who God says we are. And that's why we're unpacking this big idea. I know he is, 
the light of the world, etc. But what am I? I want to talk to that. Before I do, I, I want to maybe just drill down into what causes the gap. The gap, typically the gap doesn't just spring up overnight, okay? One of the biggest uh, and growing forms of crime globally in, uh, around the world at the moment is cyber crime. And one of the most um, uh, common forms of cyber crime is identity theft, uh, where various hackers and, and thieves and syndicated networks and so on and so forth uh, are trying to um, steal your identity, maybe, maybe uh, steal your passport. You know, two of the passengers on the uh, Malaysian Airlines uh, flight that, that, that possibly um, crashed in the Indian Ocean or probably crashed in the, in the Indian Ocean. Apparently, two of the passengers there actually used forged passports to board that plane. Um, well, that's nice, Annette. I am now the light of the world. Thank you. Um, credit card theft is a big one. You know, maybe, maybe I don't know if any of you have ever had that. You get your credit card statement and you think, oh, I don't remember spending $6,000 on a gold ring in Dubai recently uh, because somebody's actually hacked your credit card and, and for at least one transaction has stolen your identity. And yet, actually, some of us have allowed other people to steal our identity, not necessarily in a cyber way, but actually in terms of us no longer being who God's created us to be, and instead us living according to what I call OPI, other people's opinions. And what's interesting to me, and I wonder how many of you have ever thought this, often, and John Ortberg actually referenced this as well, often some of the very people that we alter and adjust our behavior aren't the people we love. They're often people we're trying to impress, people maybe we, we barely know or people we're trying to get to know. We, we position ourselves differently. We, we actually allow the, the potential of what other people will think about us to actually steal our identity for us to not be who we are. I'm not saying we shouldn't care what other people think about us and, and just be rude and obnoxious. Uh, what I am saying is there's this idea, and we'll get to this, about us becoming the version of ourselves that God's created us to be and not allowing other people's opinions to steal our identity. I think sometimes this gap is created by the negative influences of significant others, people who do love us and are in our world, um, have level of influence in us, but, but, but sometimes we'll actually throw a negative uh, opinion or a negative perspective our way, and we actually maybe, maybe course correct um, from a course we were never off in the first place. This week I was listening to a story. A, a songwriter, one of the most prolific uh, current Christian songwriters in uh, the developing world, he's an English-based guy named Tim Hughes. Tim Hughes, had just he'd written this song, and, uh, and he went to, to visit his buddy, Matt Redman, who's also a very high-profile songwriter and worship leader. And he, and he met up with him, and he played him this song. You know, Tim Hughes played Matt Redman this song just to get his feedback. You know, Matt Redman is an incredibly uh, accomplished songwriter. He wrote the song, Heart of Worship. You know, I'm getting back to the heart of worship. 
I uh, wrote the song, Blessed Be Your Name, a song that we've been introducing, 10,000 Reasons. You know, this guy's like a, like a hit-making, Christian hit-making factory. And uh, so Tim Hughes goes to Matt Redmond to play this song and uh, plays it through. And he says, you know, what do you think? And Matt Redmond says, nah, hate it. Hate it. Choruses sounds too much like the verse. Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. And it's too long. So Tim Hughes, based on the opinion of, opinion of Matt Redman, just shelved that song. And he shelved it for a period of time. I don't know how long, months, years, I don't know. But shelved it for a period of time. And uh, Tim Hughes, uh, he leads worship at Holy Trinity Brompton in, uh, in London, where uh, the Alpha Course was actually created. And uh, he was kind of back, backstage just riffing out this song that he'd shelved. This song that Matt Redman had told him sucked. And he's just riffing on it. And uh, the guy that leads the church happens to hear it. And he says to Tim, wow, wow, what's that song? And uh, Tim says, ah, it's just, it's just a song I wrote a while ago. Matt Redman hates it. So, I, you know, I, I, I just put it away. I haven't played it. And he goes, man, that song is incredible. He says, we're playing that song next Sunday. And uh, thankfully... Uh, he listened to the opinion of his uh, leader, and this is the song. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made his heart adore. Uh, the next line of that song is, uh, because Matt Redman is an idiot, uh, he has no taste in music. It makes sense that if you're a songwriter, it makes sense to maybe preview your song with someone like Matt Redman. I get that. But some of us have actually stopped pursuing God-given dreams and God-given patterns because of the influence of one person. And my advice to you is don't just have one person. If you've got a significant decision to make, I have a personal board of directors, people that I touch base with around the world. The more important the decision, the more people I touch base with to get their input, to get their wisdom. And uh, they don't always agree with each other. I've still got to be kind of the CEO of the decision-making process. But um, I'm just glad that Tim Hughes didn't just listen to Matt Redman and that that song got out there. If you only ever live according to what other people say about you, you'll never live out what God has put in you. Another thing that causes the gap, and just thinking about this this week, is when the gap starts to appear, sometimes it's circumstantial, the gap starts to appear. We actually uh, forget what life was like before the gap existed. And we start living as if the gap is normal and, is, and is, is, as if the gap is permanent. And unfortunately, what happens is, because we're pretty kind of adaptable as humans, we mistake what's common with what's normal. 
We mistake with what happens every day instead of with, with what God intended to happen every day. And that drift happens like kind of a glacial drift. It's slow, but the gap widens and widens and widens. And we just shrug our shoulders. Ah, it's just how it is. One example in my life is a generational thing. My father, whom I love dearly, he's still with us and kicking on. Uh, he, uh, while I was, my brother and I were growing up, my father, uh, through having a very, very, very tormented childhood himself, uh, filled with a lot of anger, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of violence in the home that he grew up with, uh, grew up in, um, he played out for for many, 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 many years in our life, uh, violent anger, violent rages of anger, uh, counterbalanced with extended periods of depression where, where he, he would be in our home but locked in his bedroom because he couldn't just face even being you know, out with his family. Uh, and uh, he had two nervous breakdowns while my brother and I were growing up, for which he was hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital for many, many months on both occasions. Some very, very heavy-duty drug therapy and so on and so forth. I have an incredibly violent temper. Now, thankfully, none of you have ever seen that. And I pray to God for your sake and mine that you never will. But it's there. And uh, I can just... And, 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 and I used to unleash it a lot. Um, you know, Louisa, I don't, I don't bring it out to play anymore, but in the early uh, years of our marriage, uh, it was a frequent uh, visitor in our marriage. And uh, I mean violent. I mean like, like not PG anger, uh, not even R-rated, actually. It goes beyond that. And I say that because... <clears throat> The takeaway for me today and, and over the journey of my life is I, I may have, I don't know if it's nature or nurture or a combination of the two. I don't know if I may be genetically predisposed because I am of my father's loins to have also some anger issues, some uh, depression issues, some uh, potential for nervous breakdown issues. I don't know, okay? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. I don't know if, if I've got a predisposition to that based on nurture, the fact that I grew up surrounded in that environment. The point is, for me, and you maybe have something that you've actually settled with in your life as being normal, and I want to say to you, it might be common, but it's not normal. Normal is true north. What God says is normal. God Call, calls me to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, love. The seven, anger, depression, nervous breakdowns are not in the seven. And we need to actually understand what God intends to be normal and orient ourselves to that and not allow this gap. Can you imagine... As a church leader, if I unleashed the fury regularly or, you know, even maybe just, to, you know, on special occasions a few times a year, we had a meeting and, you know, maybe you did something that displeased me 
and uh, rather than work that through in a, in, a, in, a, in a healthy, mature way that will cause trust to, to build, actually I just go, you know, with all guns blade. It just, it, can you imagine, like, of course God wouldn't intend for that. And that's not normal. And that gap between what could have been and what used to be even in my life. And by the way, I've still got plenty of gaps. I'm just throwing maybe one out there that I've been able to close a little. But here's what John Ortberg says. The passages I just read from his book that kind of, you know, got us all a little bit melancholy and depressed at the beginning of this message. The very next paragraph, this is what he says. But God, and you read your Bible, there is a lot of but God moments. Bad news, bad news, bad news, but God. Those two words almost always signal a turnaround, almost always signal a pointing to true north, almost always signal, yeah, 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 that's common, but God. And then the finish of the sentence is what's normal, how he created things to be. Well, here's what he said. But God is determined to overcome the defacing of his image in us. His plan is not simply to repair most of our brokenness. And by the way, some of us would be happy if, if, if that is only as far as he took things. Like, I, you know, I'd still sign up for that. We're holding out, some of us are holding out for him to repair some of our brokenness. But God doesn't stop there. God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can even ask for or imagine. God is the original over-deliverer. And this is what Ortberg says about him. His plan is not simply to repair most of our brokenness, although he does that. He wants to make us new creatures. And listen to this. This sentence may be the reason God had you here this morning. Just this sentence alone could be a pivot point for you. So the story of the human race is not just one of universal disappointment, but one of inextinguishable hope. No matter where you are, no matter what aspect or aspects of your life, a gap exists, no matter how long that gap has existed for, and no matter how big that gap is, God actually wants not just to bridge that gap. He wants to make you into a new creature. The best analogy I could think of, I really like, uh, Louis and I really like the, um, uh, gosh, it's hard to even describe them in one characterization, but Cirque du Soleil, okay? Cirque du Soleil, part theater, part circus, part, extravaganza, part gymnastics, part, it's just, it's, it's, there's, no, there's nothing like it. And uh, we, we use every opportunity uh, we can to get along. I know Scotty and Evie uh, went along last year. Well, well, you took selfies in the actual foyer. That could just be your version of, you didn't actually have a ticket and you didn't end up going in, but you wanted to impress people to make them think that you went in. But anyway, Cirque du Soleil. Well, here's an example of one of the characters of Cirque du Soleil. You know, we see him, it's kind of a, a, a blended before and after shot. Uh, before, just a, a regular, regular everyday dude, and afterwards, on the right hand side, they've put on his makeup, and uh, and and he's a new, and and he starts to form this uh, character. And in my experience, 
this is actually how many people think God approaches transformation in us. That we keep all of what we had before we decided to follow Jesus. And he just kind of puts on a nice new coat of paint, a new varnish of makeup. And so we've still got all of the disappointments, all of the inadequacies, all of the sin, all of the brokenness, all of the hurt. That's still our identity. And we know that. And we are vividly aware of that. But thankfully to the world around us, God's put on a new mask. And that is not the gospel story. That is not the Jesus story. That is not what we celebrated last weekend around Easter. Jesus didn't come to make us less bad. He died and rose again so that we could become new creations. See, I think about my proclivity to anger and and violence and depression. That's not who I am. That's who I was. And at the age of 21, I decided to follow Jesus. And he began not just papering over the cracks. He began a complete, complete transformation of my identity. And this is the truth of this whole three-week conversation we're having. I'm going to say it this way. And Louis taught on this a few weeks ago. Those of you that were here heard that. We're working on getting the podcast on. We've got a couple of technical difficulties. Uh, But we've got to know who God is before we can know who we are. And the big takeaway is God and God alone gets to define who he is. He was talking to uh, Moses one day, and Moses said to God, he'd given Moses a message to go and tell the people. And Moses said to him, okay, God, I'll go and tell the people, but who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am who I am. God only God gets to define who he is. You know, if we took this microphone and a little battery pack maybe into the city this afternoon and we kept on, you know, we went around and and got, let's say, 50 people and just asked them a little Vox Pop question. Who do you think God is? We probably get 50 answers. There might be some overlap or whatever. You know what? None of them count for anything unless they line up with who God says he is. So we've got to first and foremost find out who God says he is. And thankfully, he's written it down for us. It's not a mystery. It's in a thing called the Bible. And we just need to keep drilling down into that. Who is God really? And as we learn who God is, just like he gets to define who he is, We have to allow him, not Matt Redman, not my dad, not the people that you're trying to impress, not the people who have said negative things about you, 
not the people who have tried to steal your dreams and hopes and aspirations. God and God alone. We need to allow him, him to have not just the final word on who we are, to have the only word that matters on who we are. Who does God say I am? You know, I'm uh, pretty high tech these days. You know, I preach uh, from an iPad, you know, well, actually, three years ago, that was pretty high tech. Now it's like, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I've been preaching from an iPad for about three years. Uh, we, we had these uh, screens and projectors and iMac and some new software and that installed so we could really uh, take advantage of visual cues and visual media for communicating uh, timeless truth in timely methods. Um, Back in the dark ages, uh, in, uh, from a period of about 2003 to about 2007, uh, I would travel in my role at, at our previous church. I would travel about six months of the year um, speaking and conducting leadership uh, development in various churches around the world. And in those dark ages, and I might be away for a month at a time. It might have been around the world trip or it might have been to a particular part of the world and, and move around in that time uh, and do something you know, some speaking and training and leadership coaching and so on nearly every day and sometimes multiple sessions a day. So what, what that would mean is that I would have to sit down with my PA and, uh, and figure out before I get on the plane, every single message, every single session, every single, single thing I was going to go and communicate at every single destination in every single time slot. And I would pack and, and, and I printed them out A4 uh, folded to A5 so they were lighter for uh, transporting all of my notes. So I might have 10, 20, 30, um, you know, uh, sets of notes to, to speak from. Well, these days, now I don't travel as much as I did uh, then, but, but I still uh, am out and about uh, on occasions. And um, I don't have to do any of that because I've got my iPad or my iPhone and all of my devices are all connected together. And I just have to have all of my messages, every message I've preached, every leadership session I've taken for, for as long as I want back in the history of time. I just have to have them all loaded. And so I don't even have to decide what I'm going to preach about until, oh, I don't know, the third song maybe. And I can just... There's only one issue. And the issue is I need to have... Wi-Fi connectivity, or my whole plan falls apart. And the reason my whole plan falls apart is because my notes, even the notes I'm reading from here, aren't actually on my iPad. They're, I use iCloud, and so my notes are... Oh, Steve, God bless you. Uh, my notes are in there somewhere. The notes I'm reading right now. They're not on my iPad. They're, 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 they're in one of these servers somewhere. New farms, they're called. Data farms. And what we need to understand is we've actually been set free from the dark ages of our disappointments, the dark ages of our inadequacy, the dark ages of our failing and our identity is stored in the cloud. Your identity is not stored in you. It's not formed in you. It's not recorded in you. It actually lives in the cloud. 
It lives in who God says you are, who God says I am. I am a child of God. I am the light of the world. I am more than a conqueror. I am the head and not the tail. I am an overcomer. Shall I go on? The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on of the things that God says about us from the cloud. That's where our identity lives. I want to give you one example and finish with this. This is Jesus having an interaction with some of his close followers. And Matthew recorded it this way. When Jesus arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what are people saying about who the Son of Man is? Now, it's kind of interesting because I'm not sure Jesus really cared what other people thought about him. But, you know, he just put it out there. I think it was a bit of a teaser for the next question. Kind of like a, uh, kind of like a conversational starting point. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some thinks he's John the Baptizer. Some say Elijah. Some Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Ha, huh. here we go. Here's the real one. He pressed them. And what about you? Who do you say I am? There are 7 billion people on the planet at this moment in time. Jesus wants every single one of them to answer that question. Us included. Thankfully, some of us have answered. And by the way, if you haven't answered, I'm about to give you the clue as to what the correct answer is. Simon Peter said, now Simon Peter, uh, give you a bit of history up to this point in time, wasn't known for his wisdom, wasn't known for his silence, wasn't known for his passivity. In fact, he was known for being an idiot. Not always right, but never in doubt. Thankfully, on this rare occasion, he said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Spoiler alert, that is the correct answer. Which is why Jesus came back and said, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of the books or from teachers. My father in heaven, my father in the cloud, God himself let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you from the cloud who you really are. You are Peter a rock. And this is the rock on which I'll put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. If you ever walk into a church that is dead and lifeless and passive and boring and no energy, that's not the church that Jesus described. Jesus described his church this way. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell we'll be able to keep it out. And that's not all. You will have complete and free access to God's kingdom. Now, he was talking to Simon Peter. There's a lot of debate over in history about, about kind of some of the nuances of what Jesus said in this particular uh, section. And you can arm wrestle uh, until Jesus comes back with the Catholics about this one as well. And having grown up Catholic, I get both sides of the, of the argument. 
I'm not particularly interested in that. But what I understand about this is Jesus was giving Simon Peter a revelation. Because Simon Peter, who knew, knew who he was, Jesus turned it around and said, great, that's the start of the revelation. Now let me reveal more. Let me reveal who you are. But not only that, he started to reveal what that meant in the everyday of what Simon Peter could do. Who we are informs what we do. You'll have complete and free access to God's kingdom. Keys to open any and every door. That sounds like a pretty good promise, huh? A triple A backstage pass to God's kingdom that can open any and every door. We've got access to that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have access to that and you need to know that. No more barriers between heaven and earth, earth and heaven. See, up to that point, if you wanted to get to God, you had to go through somebody, a prophet, a priest. Jesus said, I'm here because I'm here. You now have a triple A pass all on your own. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. I was talking with Zidware earlier this morning. In Australia, I won't speak for all the countries of the world. In Australia, in certain countries of the world, children are given names based on some particular meaning. And uh, in Australia, we give our kids names based on names we like. Oh, what do you think of that name, honey? Oh, yeah, I really like that one. Oh, no, I don't really like that one. And, you know, and that's cool. It's good. But we've lost this idea of, of names having meaning. By the way, having shared what I shared earlier, the name Mark is, comes uh, after the, uh, is derived from the god of war. And Mark means warlike. So maybe that's another reason I used to have a violent temper. Peter's name, Simon, Simon meant shifty. And everyone knew that. Like, you know, you didn't have to say, hey, by the way, my name's mean Shifty. No, they knew. So there's Shifty. All of his life, he's been, and he was called Shifty because presumably, you know, and, they, and, and babies weren't given their names like on, you know, day one or two. They, they, they let a little bit of the personality come out. And then, ah, I can see his personality, Shifty. So we'll call him Shifty. So he grew up with that tag, you know, hi, my name is Shifty. For all of his life, and Jesus spins that around. And Jesus didn't just say to him, from now on, you're going to be less shifty. I'm going to close the gap a little. Jesus actually gave him a brand new identity. You know shifty? Shifty? It means, you know, things move, move easily. Kind of, you know, the wind blows and it moves this way and then, the wind blows, changes direction, and things shift this way. This is shifty. Jesus called him the rock. Peter, the rock. The rock from the Greek Petros, which means rock. Jesus didn't just make him a less bad version, less shifty. He actually didn't just put some... Cirque du Soleil makeup over his character. He actually called him Peter, the rock, and then went on to say what that means in his everyday life. And this is a pattern that we need to know and we need to take away. 
Just chuck the last one up, thanks, Zodwa. This is a little summary. But if you have learned nothing else this morning, and if you take nothing else away, please, for the love of God and for your own destiny, take this away. The starting point of of our our journey in, in learning who we really are is to know who God is. God is El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough. God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. God is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, my shepherd. And it goes on and on. You know, he didn't, by the way, he didn't just say to us, I am who I am. So, you know, suck it up. Throughout the old part of the Bible, he would describe himself again and again and again. And who he said he was is who he is. Allow him and him alone to define who you are, not your genetics. Well, itchy trigger finger there, Zodwa. Let's just uh, chuck that one in reverse. Thank you very much. I could tell you what Zodwa, Zodwa in uh, traditional uh, Shona Zimbabwe means itchy trigger finger. <laughs> Actually means many girls, but uh, there you go. Uh, allow God and God alone to define who you are and then out of who God says you are, allow that to inform and instruct what you do. Um, I want to pray. And I want to pray for those of you for whom this, your gap is this seems too good to be true. That Jesus' plan for your life is not just to kind of paper over the cracks and make you a less bad version, less disappointing version, but actually a new creation. <clears throat> I get it, you know, that's, that's maybe your gap. Your gap is you, you find it kind of a big, big pill to swallow that Jesus wants to actually close the gap, not just narrow the gap. I want to pray for you because uh, revelation can be instantaneous, but the outworking of revelation sometimes takes a process. And for some of you, your homework needs to be to go from this place and read your notes again and read the the Bible versions that we've put up. Uh, You can Google uh, John if you Google John Ortberg, I am a disappointment, <laughs> that passage I read to you will come up as a blog post in its entirety. And maybe you just read that and let it motivate you to not be that way. Uh, Elevate groups are launching in the next two weeks. This is the fir- Elevate groups are the fertile soil which we talk about this stuff. Elevate groups are these environments where we can actually form our own board of directors, where you can sit down with some guys, some girls, some couples, and say, you know what, that stuff that Mark was teaching about our our, our identity, I I, I really struggled with that. And someone's going to be in the mix there to help you, encourage you, and help you process that. So, you know, this isn't kind of a thinly veiled marketing ploy 
to get you into an Elevate group. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. That's why we set up Elevate groups. Louis and I lead an Elevate group because we don't have any special magical powers that allow us to do life on our own and, uh, and live out the victory that God has for us. But I want to pray for you, for those of you for whom you know that this is going to be a big homework assignment for you. How about if that's you, I don't know if it's one of you, 20 of you, just put your hand up so I know who I'm praying for. But people that you think, good on you, James, Baden, good on you, boys. Yep, fantastic. Just quickly. Great. Great. Fantastic. I love that. And you're here. Great. God, we just read from your son Jesus saying that we have an all-access backstage pass to every single door in heaven, that we, your church, the gates of hell will not stand against us. That a yes on heaven in heaven is a yes on earth. And so the yes that we pray for, the yes that we orient ourselves towards is, is, is a yes of a greater revelation of who we are, who you say we are. A greater revelation of what that's going to require for us to actually appropriate the reality that you've already set up, that that, that that gap is closed, not just narrowed. And I pray over the, the remainder of this year, God, that as we get together and elevate groups and as we continue to form community, as we continue to, to have other people join Elevate Church, that we will see a growing confidence, confidence with faith, that we are growing into who you say we are, that we, and that that's informing everything we do, that we're not victims, but we're victors. We're not uh, subject to the script of our past, the script of other people, but we are new creations in you, and that's becoming real in our everyday life, in every aspect, in Jesus' name. Amen.